today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds of flocks, herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the privilege of, of uh, opening your amazing word uh, that gives testimony to uh, who you are and uh, what you accomplished through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that testifies who we are in Christ and gives us a roadmap along the way of how to bring you glory and honor and praise, how to live our lives um, uh, in submission to you. And uh, Lord, this is a difficult book, as Jake said, um, but Lord, we also, um, so we want to acknowledge that and say that there are things that the preacher says in this book that um, at times are hard to swallow. Um, but God, we know that, um, that your word is your word. It's inspired uh, by the Spirit. And uh, so God, we just ask that you would um, just whatever we had going on in our week this past week that was uh, great, whatever went on that wasn't so great, God, would you just help us be here? And Holy Spirit, would you minister to us um, through um, the life-giving, abiding word of God? And pray, God, that we would... Um, yeah, that you would just uh, continue to, the work that you've begun in each of us that you would bring to completion. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. So my, uh, my voice is uh, a little bit hoarse just because I've I got a bit of a cold. I didn't start smoking this last week. It's a cold. Um, I want to ask you, you don't have to answer it um, out loud, but um, how has the book of Ecclesiastes been for you so far? Um, I think if you were honest, you would go, wow, it's, you know, um, maybe, maybe I haven't looked at it in this light before, or uh, wow, I really could have done without the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, or maybe you're uh, like me, where you go, wow, I, um, it's hard, but it's good. It's actually causing me to worship God, to see God, and to worship God in ways that... Um, Maybe I haven't seen him before or haven't worshipped him before. We are, uh, this is our third sermon and, uh, in this um, beautiful, paradoxical book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're going to be in it for a little while. Um, today we're just going through the first 11 verses as, um, as was just read in chapter 2. And uh, we've titled the sermon today, The Fullness of Joy and Pleasures Forevermore. Fullness of Joy 
and pleasures forevermore. And we stole that from Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, which we're going to talk about later on in the sermon. And um, the only um, word that we're going to define this morning is, is once again, is, is, uh, is vanity. Um, for those of you that are new with us today, maybe you haven't heard the other two sermons, uh, just really important to know what vanity means. Um, NIV calls it meaningless. Um, new Christian version calls it uh, futility. Uh, but vanity is actually all three, uh, whether it be meaningless, uh, vanity, or or futility, it's all from the Hebrew word of Hevel, H-E-V-E-L, which means vapor. Um, it's, it's, it's here for a moment and it's gone. It's, uh, it's uh, transient. It's unsubstantial. You can't grab a hold of it. You can't control it. So, uh, so 39 times in this book, um, the preacher, who is what, he, is what he calls himself or what the author calls him, is going to refer to life and toil and our efforts as vanity. Um, he's not saying that it doesn't have meaning. Um, he's saying that it's, uh, it's, it's here for a moment and it's gone. And what we're going to learn today is that um, our efforts, our toil in life, no matter what you're doing, um, at the end of the day, um, if you're looking for um, ultimate pleasure and ultimate happiness in any aspect of your toil, any good toil under the sun, um, it's going to end with a big thud. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit today. Um, the preacher... Um, and by the way, I'll just give this to you up front. I think I've said that, um, that I'm not sure, I wasn't convinced that the preacher is Solomon, um, is King Solomon. Um, I'm getting, um, and I told you not to worry about that, um, but I'm getting more and more convinced that it's Solomon. I just wish he would have said, hey, this is Solomon. Um, I wouldn't have spent so much uh, brain. Um, yeah, I've got very few cells up there any left anyways, and I had to expend a bunch of those. Um, but a, a dear friend yesterday appealed to me, and just some of my reading uh, that I was doing already in First Kings um, has helped me out with that. Um, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, um, but it, it actually helps us understand um, what the preacher is saying when we think through the life of Solomon a little bit. Um, so the, the preacher, um, and I'm going to refer to him continually as the preacher, because that's what the text refers to him as, as the preacher or the teacher. Um, we saw last week that he previously applied all of his heart to seek and search by wisdom, through his own human wisdom, all that is done under heaven. He tried to understand, he applied human wisdom to try to understand the meaning of life, particularly the madness in the folly that he saw in this life. He said that the more, the more human wisdom he used to understand the brokenness in this world, it actually caused him increasing grief and sorrow. And I think um, that's where human wisdom, I mean, how do you explain this world? How do you explain um, all the brokenness in this world um, through human wisdom? You can't. It's, it's futile. Now we're going to see um, the results of the preacher, depending upon, his own, depending upon his own human wisdom, to find happiness. He, took, he looked for meaning um, at the end of chapter 1 in this broken world. Now he's looking for um, happiness. And we're going to see in today's passage that the preacher is going to share his testimony about chasing after all the good things in the world to find pleasure or happiness. He relies on conventional wisdom, human wisdom, to make him happy. How many of you have seen the movie The Greatest Showman? A few of you have. If you haven't seen it, and I'm really, um, I'm really careful about giving movie recommendations uh, because I know that the people that give me movie recommendations are usually uh, crummy recommendations. It's like, I can't watch that. Like, what are you thinking? So Nancy and I have a list on our fridge of people that we watch movies that, when they recommend them to us, and most of you are not on that list. No, I don't know. We, we don't have that list. We probably should. Um, but in The Greatest Showman, um, Hugh Jackman plays the part of P.T. Barnum. And P.T. Barnum played a uh, tailor's son, uh, that, um, and he was, a, he was poor. A tailor as in um, hemming up coats and pants and stuff like that. And he, he had a very poor upbringing. And um, one day he was with his dad at a rich aristocrat's house and helping him, uh, fitting him in a suit. And the boy was sitting there fiddling with things he shouldn't be fiddling with in this mansion. And, he, and the boy looks over, little P.T. Barnum, probably age nine, looks over, and he sees the rich guy's daughter over there. And they kind of make eye contact with each other. And, um, and he fell in love with her at that moment and, and started writing her letters and vowed to her that one day he would marry her 
and he would provide her with everything that she had growing up and more. You got the picture? This poor kid. So it was, um, he ended up marrying her, and he ended up giving her everything that she had before and more. And I like stories like this, actually. There's some, there's some I like um, riches, uh, rags to riches stories. I like underdog stories. There's just something redemptive about that because um, we were, we're all the underdog, really, in the context of the gospel. Um, but it's also a um, sad story, The Greatest Showman, because um, this man um, never had enough to ultimately satisfy him. He never had enough. This passage today shows the heart and struggle of a great man, the preacher, who's been shown favor by the Lord and he's been endowed with all kinds of amazing gifts from the Lord. But he never seems to have enough. He piles up one accomplishment after the other and one stack of gold after the other. And um, in in many ways, those of you that know my testimony, I can relate with this on on many levels. Um, not, not, Not anywhere close on the wisdom, not anywhere close on the riches, but very much the same pursuits. Um, that there was a stage in my life where um, I grew up in a home, uh, a home, uh, a loving home, a home where, um, where God was presented, but not in the person of Jesus Christ. And, but it was, a, it was a home where my dad grew up uh, very much like P.T. Barnum. He grew up as a poor man, uh, grew up, grew up in, in, uh, yeah, as a poor man. And he had vowed that he would uh, not raise his kids that way, that he would be successful. And my dad attained great success. He raised seven kids. Um, he retired at age 50. Um, he um, took us uh, all through college. He paid for all of our college, bought us all our first car. He's really a good man. What came out of that is seven kids, including me, that had, um, um, from a human wisdom standpoint, we had a warped perspective of what it means, what it meant to be successful, what it meant to have worth. And so I spent the early years of my life um, chasing everything down that I thought would end with ultimate pleasure. And um, in God's kindness, actually, um, he, um, and, it, and it's, it's one of the, um, I wasn't sure if I was saved or not when I was heading down this road. And I want to be really careful here because um, once you're saved and you have God's spirit, you have new desires, actually, and you have a new direction in your life. And I didn't necessarily have a new direction in my life, but I do feel like um, God might have had a hold of me. Um, but at the very minimum, um, he knew he was going to get a hold of me. And he needed to wreck me, actually. He needed to um, strip me away, strip everything away from me that I was finding ultimate pleasure, satisfaction, and happiness in. And we're actually going to see this happen to the preacher. And it's kind of the Lord when that happens. Um, I can't think of anything more miserable as to spend our entire life um, finding ultimate pleasure and joy and satisfaction and happiness in the things under the sun that the good, uh, that the giver of all things under the sun has given us so that we might find pleasure in Him. I can't, find any, I can't think of anything worse than at the end of the life to recognize that I spent my entire life chasing things to find pleasure when ultimately pleasure was only found in the one who created those things. Pleasure is not bad in itself. But what I I hope we see today in God's Word is that pleasure in and of itself is the wrong end. It's not wrong, but it's the wrong end. It's the wrong goal. Happiness is the wrong goal, actually. Nancy and I were, um, I don't even know if Nancy was with me. She might have been sleeping on the couch next to me. But we were, we had a, um, we had a time last week where we were seeking pleasure on the couch with the with a remote. You ever done that? It's okay sometimes. There's some good shows out there, by the way. Um, but HDTV wasn't one of them, and I was watching that. Um, and it was the, um, it, that's really going low when your wife is sleeping on the couch and you're just like, you're watching HDTV. So it should be, there's hunting channels and stuff like that. But I was on HDTV, that's confession. And um, it was the House Hunter, it was the House Hunter show. And it was, it was beach house hunting. And it was this couple that, um, this single couple, I believe, they didn't talk about their kids, that looked like they're maybe in their late 40s, and um, they had jobs that allowed them to live somewhere where they wanted to live. So they were from Fresno, California, and they decided they wanted to live in the, um, in the um, Cancun area. What's that peninsula? Yucatan Peninsula. And so they went down there, 
And um, he, just give you a little bit of a profile, he is a guy that loves uh, people and busyness and noise. He's kind of like me. Like I can prepare for a message in Starbucks with things going on around. And some people can't. They just need to be like in their headset in their room. And she wants to be, um, wants to have a place in Mexico where all she can see is beach and no people. So they go to the, the, the real rotation of the first place in Playa del Carmen, and it's right on a busy street, and it's a, it's a hip, like, fourth-story um, condo with everything's modern, and she's just got a scowl on her face walking through there the whole time. Like, there's no beach. I look out there, and I see street. I see people. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's noisy, and he's excited about it. And then the next scene, they go to this, uh, I think it was Porto Adventurous. It was more of a quaint area. And they're in a, in a condo where she looks out the window and she sees a swimming pool. And beyond that, she sees the ocean. And this guy's complaining because there's no people. There's no activity. There's no noise. And it just, it was just, it just struck me as I've been going through Ecclesiastes. It made me sick to my stomach at how um, spoiled we are. Like, just full disclosure, just so you don't judge me, um, we're going to Mexico in March. I'm, this is nothing about, um, the, the, uh, about Mexico or about vacation. We need rest. But it's when, we, when, we find, when we're looking for ultimate pleasure and satisfaction uh, in the things that God created for us to, uh, to, to point, point us to Him, um, that's where it breaks down. So let me ask you two questions right up front. Question number one, what or who are you turning to to find pleasure in this life? What or who are you turning to? And I think there's a typo up there, unless they fixed it, because I, I gave it to them with a typo. Second question is, does God even want you to be happy? It's a, it's a good question in the church, because we talk so much about mission. We talk so much about making disciples. Um, we talk about, um, about giving first fruits, giving off the top, giving sacrificially and cheerfully. We talk about this life being short as just a vapor. Does God even want me to be happy in this life? Verse 1 says, the preacher says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And he says right up front, so we don't have to guess where he ends up, but behold, this was all vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What's the use of it? He, He tested himself and said, enjoy yourself. Let's try the pursuit of pleasure as an end to joy. I'm looking for gain in this life, and true gain seems to be found in the pursuit of happiness. This is what the wisdom of man apart from God tells us. You see, he reverses the first answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the, that's the answer to the Westminster Catechism. What he says, in essence, is the chief end of man is to seek pleasure and enjoy yourself forever. Where did we get that so backwards? That's not the chief end of man. At face value, this would not necessarily be a wrong statement. The chief end of man is to seek pleasure and enjoy yourself forever. But it's the wrong approach, actually. We are to enjoy ourselves. We are to find pleasure. But what I hope you see here is the reality that God created you for happiness and he created you for pleasure that is found only in him. Ultimate pleasure is not found in all the good things that were promised in the American dream. Humanity has been duped into believing this since the garden. We've been duped by the false promise of happiness Ever since Satan enticed the woman with the delight of her eyes and the false promise of being wise like God. You see, Satan led Adam and Eve, Satan led Adam and Eve, convincing them that they could have lasting happiness outside of a relationship with their creator. We know how that went. Blaise Pascal said it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. Let's just agree on that right now. All men and women, all humanity seeks happiness. This is without exception, he says. Whatever different means they use, human beings, we all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding war, it's the same desire in both, to be happy. And this is hard, but it's true. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. The ultimate end 
is to be happy. In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas, and Thomas Jefferson gives us this beautiful quote. He says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What truths? These truths. That all men are created equal. Praise be to God. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there's a lot of truth in that, actually. Especially if you can overlay the gospel on that statement. Um, this uh, quote builds a great country where many dreams are born and realized, but if taken at face value, it only sets us up for disappointment. At the end of the day, whether it be on your deathbed or whether it be in your stage right now, um, um, pursuing these with all of your heart only ends up in disappointment. And the preacher tells us that right up front, what happiness, what the pursuit of happiness produced in his life. He says, vanity. He says, a, a life goal of, being, uh, of, of seeking pleasure and enjoying yourself in all the good things under the sun alone is futile. It'll break your heart. It's like a vapor. It will vanish. In the verses 3 through 8, he lists everything that he chased after to find pleasure. Verse 3 says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Everything the preacher sought to find pleasure in is not necessarily evil. Let's just, let's just admit that and agree to that right up front. Most are actually good gifts from God, good gifts that he's given us to enjoy. But the problem is, is that the preacher is looking for cheer or to, to draw out happiness from these things. And I think that he's actually, if you go back to the end of chapter 1 where we taught last week, that, that he saw, um, he's, uh, through human wisdom, he, he sought after um, uh, understanding all the madness and the folly in this world. You remember where it ended him up? Last verse of chapter 1? With great grief and sorrow. He saw everything that happened under the sun. He saw all the brokenness. In the same way that we see all the brokenness in the world today, whether it, be, whether it be refugees, whether it be homelessness, whether it be abortion, whether it be uh, uh, House Bill 1032, we see all that. And, and then his response to that was that he, he, he then turned from that. He said, man, I've got to be happy. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of garbage going on in this, in this world, and I've got to be, I've got to be happy. So I'm thinking that he's, he's possibly covering up all the grief and the sorrow that came as a result of him applying his heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. He desires to be happy. Who doesn't? He searched it in his heart, literally after much thought and probably in much despair, he dove in the deep end of pleasure-seeking, first with alcohol as an agent of pleasure, and then with foolishness in general. And um, he says that he turned to wine. He tries wine to cheer him up. Um, and I'll just say right up front, just very briefly, that um, alcohol in and of itself is not evil. It's not forbidden. It's not a sin. But we don't have to look too far in our family tree. We don't have to look too far um, in our neighborhood to see the havoc that alcohol has, has, um, has wrecked on the lives of people. So there's two primary prohibitions with alcohol. Um, one is, is to uh, not get drunk. Don't let it control you. The second is, is don't cause others to stumble. Just thought I needed to. It's, it's such a, a hot topic, or at least in, historically it's been. But then he goes into, he says, I laid hold of folly. Foolishness or folly, generally speaking, is living life according to your way, according to your pattern, rather than according to God's pattern. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. So I, we can go, well, heck yes. A fool is somebody that doesn't believe in God. Well, that's true. But I think what David's talking about in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 is those of us that do believe in God, that do believe in Jesus Christ, the side of the cross, but we're not acknowledging Him. We're living our lives separate from Him. We're making decisions um, without um, um, 
inquiring of his word and the other resources that he's given us to make decisions. Anything we do apart from God is foolishness or folly. And what the preacher is going to describe in his search for pleasure and enjoyment apart from God um, is that it's foolishness. And he's embarking on a dangerous experiment throughout his life. Um, but he, he testifies that he headed down this road to see what truly brings happiness to the human race. Oh, by the way, he slips in, um, he slips in in the middle of verse 3, almost in parentheses. He says, um, he says my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. Hmm. What he's saying is, is that, that, that human understanding, human wisdom is leading him down this road. All these good things have got to bring me happiness. He's still depending upon human wisdom to unlock the meaning of life. So let's take a look at verses 4 through 8 and see what else he lays hold of that's foolishness so that he can see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Verse 4, he introduces us his resume with an overarching I made great works. Look at me. Then notice in verses, the, the end of uh, verse 4 through verse 8, um, that, that all that he created, all that he built, all that he earned, who did he do it for? Me, myself, and I. I want you to notice all the times it says I and myself. Anybody see, know of Brian Regan, the me monster? Me, me, it's all about me. Or the, or the uh, what are they, pelicans? They're not pelicans, they're seagulls. And Finding Little Nemo, when they're waiting to get fed, mine, 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 mine. That's Solomon. I made great works. I did it for myself. Uh, verse, uh, end of verse 4, I built houses and planted vineyards. For who? Myself. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He amassed a great number of people and animals more than anyone who had been before him. And he's taken pride in those possessions. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself money, silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. You see what he's doing here? He's recreating the Garden of Eden. Every human being that has ever lived understands the need and desire for pleasure and happiness. And he was looking for it in all the wrong places. He was trying to recreate his own Garden of Eden through his own wisdom. And everything that Solomon or the preacher had, we can have in America. It's all available to us, both the good and the bad. Everything is offered to us. Consumerism, a new word that I learned is affluenza, not influenza, but affluenza. We have that in America. Um, we're going to be giving shots out in the back of the uh, sanctuary at the end of the service. Consumerism tells us that the secret to life and happiness is to get more, is to get bigger, to get better. In the U.S., in the United States right now, we consume three times as much as we did in the 1950s. And statistics show that we're, we're not any happier. We believe the lie that if we only had X, Y, or Z, we would finally be satisfied. We would finally arrive. If I could just have that house or that car or that job, if I could just have that wife or that extra degree, if we can acquire all that we thought we wanted to be satisfied, we'll be happy. And at some point we find that those promises of happiness are untrue. In our culture, people even borrow so that they could have those things in spades, only to find that they're more stressed out and unhappy. In verse 9, he says, So I became great 
and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. He had arrived. Solomon went for it, and he gained it all. Today, he would have been named politician and entrepreneur of the century. He would have been on the cover of Forbes magazine. He would have been featured in the Rob Report. Remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? He would have been on that show. There would have been documentaries and movies made after his life. He denied himself nothing. Nothing visibly, nothing entertaining, nothing visibly entertaining or inwardly satisfying. He became great. And I want to take you to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6 through 7. And if in fact this was Solomon, I want you to feel, um, whoever, whoever you feel like is great today, um, there was no one greater than this man in that daytime. The queen of, the queen of Sheba came to him in chapter 10, verses 6 through 7. And she was quite successful and wise in her own right. And she said to the king, Solomon, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Then verse 23 of chapter 10. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. But it didn't go so well for Solomon. Success is a slippery slope. Success isn't evil. It's a slippery slope especially when it becomes intoxicating and we start to read and believe our own headlines. In the end, Solomon forsook the Lord and he did it his way, the foolish way. He went after the Jerusalem dream and he chased all that his eyes desired. I don't have a slide, I don't think, for 1 Kings chapter 11, but listen what happened to Solomon. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Success, wanting more, is a slippery slope. This is the end of his life. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with these different ladies from different nations, which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart from their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, to these women. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. I know what you're saying. Well, I would never do that. But the point is he was seeking pleasure apart from God. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Listen to the discipline of the Lord in verse, uh, verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. A couple things going on here that I think are important. One is that, in, as it says in Hebrews 12, that God disciplines whom he loves. And that if you, know, if you know Jesus as your Savior and you're chasing pleasures in this life, even good gifts from God, uh, to find ultimate satisfaction um, apart from God, um, He's going to gently uh, chastise you uh, to, um, and maybe even ripping those things away from you to get your attention. Um, worse, worse actually, is that He lets you continue chasing after those things where you have a lifetime of regret of find, trying to find pleasure in those things. The other thing that's going on here, even as he disciplined Solomon and he removed the kingdom from him, do you notice what happened? He, he, he allowed the, let me just read the words so I don't butcher them, is that it says, um, 
not Balaam. It says, um, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. That, that God's a promise keeper. God is not a covenant breaker. And it doesn't matter um, actually what any of the sins of anybody in the Old Testament was, is that God was going to fulfill his promise of bringing, bringing forth a Messiah. And that was through the southern kingdom, the one, the one kingdom or two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah that God kept alive. So just even in when God disciplines us, it's all out of love. It's for his glory and it's for your good. Some of us have gone after all that our eyes desired and God in his kindness took it all away. That's my story. And if there was nothing, if, if Jesus had not, if Jesus is not who he said he was, if God would have... have um, not brought forth a Messiah, we could, we could do what Peggy Lee in her song says. Peggy Lee says, is, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Um, she's, she's a, and I'm sorry for all these stories, but I just love stories, and Ecclesiastes just lends itself to stories. But in this song, Peggy Lee is singing about when her, um, when her dad, uh, when her dad, when the house burnt down, and she was standing outside with her dad, and she's just, she's singing the song, is this all there is? And then her dad takes her to a circus, and she sees the trapeze artist um, going back and forth, and she gets outside the tent and goes, is this all there is? And then she talks about a man who loved her and then left her, and then she says, is this all there is? And so she sings, is this all there is? Is this all there is? If that's, if that's all there, if that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze. Let's have a ball. If that's all there is. But can I tell you, that's not all there is. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians. If that's all there is, let's eat, drink, and be merry. And actually, the, the uh, preacher's going to turn that verse around as we're going to see next week. He's actually going to encourage us to eat, drink, and be merry. But finding ultimate pleasure in the giver of those gifts. Let's finish up in verses 10 through 11. Whatever my eyes desired... The preacher says, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil or all my effort, and this was my reward for my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, futile. And it was striving after the wind. It left him empty-handed. And there was nothing to be gained. There was no profit under the sun. The reward for our toil is momentary pleasure. You know, this is going to rub a lot of us wrong in America because there's, there's a certain pride that we take in our work and there's a certain fulfillment we get, whether that be, whether it be uh, being moms or having a job outside the house, and that's good. That's not bad. If, but but whatever, whatever we accomplish in this life, whatever, whatever it is, that, that new job, um, our, our child getting this new uh, accomplishment. I don't know what it is. It's a, you know, reciting a poem. It's a, it's a momentary pleasure. It feels good in the time. He says, my heart found pleasure in all my effort, and this was my reward for all my toil. This is actually, listen to this, this is actually a sad and seemingly hopeless comment. Every one of his accomplishments brought a certain level of satisfaction and pleasure, but like a vapor, the pleasure they bring is here today and gone tomorrow. But what is left, get this, what is left, when we accomplish something, when, when, um, when I hit a PR at the gym, which is very rarely these days, it makes me want, forget about that one and hit another PR. I felt good about it in the moment. Whatever accomplishment we get, that new job, um, the wedding, I, I, I testified last week or the week before that I was trying to remember my wedding day. I was trying to remember the birth of my daughter. I was trying to remember her little cute three-year-old words. But we forget those things. And those are our reward in the moment, if you will. But if we're, if we're seeking, if we're continuing to find ultimate pleasure in those good things of life, it's never going to stop. The more we have, the more we're going to want. And we see that so clearly, actually, in this movie, um, The Great Greatest Showman. We see it in Solomon's life. The more he had, the more he wanted. And let me just give you this illustration from The Greatest Showman. If you haven't seen the movie, go see it. If you don't like it, um, blame it on Brandon McNeil, because he just said he, he watched it. He was the one who turned me on to it, probably. I don't know. Um, but here, here's this deal, is that this, this man, um, Hugh Jackman, who's playing P.T. Barnum, um, his dreams come true. He has this idea of starting a circus. 
And the, the way that he does that is he identifies all these people who are the least of these. Did I already tell you this story, this part of it? Okay, good. I, 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 not, the services run together. Um, and he, he found, a, um, he found a, um, um, a dwarf that he... Um, that would hide himself in a bedroom every day because he was ashamed of being a dwarf. And he gave this man who was a dwarf um, actually um, something to do in life, something to celebrate. So brought him into the circus, uh, a bearded lady, a tra trapeze artist, a contortionist, and he gave all these people a life. And they helped him accomplish his dream. So next thing you know, the Barnum Circus is this, is this hit. Not everybody loves it, but it's a hit, and he's making tons of money. And then he, because of his success, he gets invited to meet the Queen of England, goes overseas to meet her. And while meeting the Queen of England, he finds out about this opera singer named Jenny, who's famous in the UK. And he goes, people in America need to know about you. And the only thing he's thinking about is money, money, money. Fame, fame, fame. So he brings this lady to the States. And P.S., he falls for her. And he puts her on tour, going city to city, and it's a raving success. People are chucking roses up there on stage when she's done singing. And after one of the performances, um, they're, they're in there with all the rich people and Jenny and Hugh Jack, P.T. Barnum, and they're celebrating their success. And you hear this knock on the door to the cocktail party. And he goes out and he, he looks out there, and it's, and it's all the least of these people that helped him get, build a name for himself. The bearded lady. Um, all these people that helped him get where he went. And you know what he did? He says, he says this party's not for you. And he, and he basically didn't give him an explanation, just shut the door on them. And they recognized at that moment that he was using them. You see, that's what success and achievements do, that, that, that enough is never enough. And this is not a statement. That the reason this is written is not that we can't enjoy. We can't, it's, it's not that we can't have big houses or new cars or great vacations or healthy kids, or, or a, a doctorate degree. That's not bad. But the point is, is that when we um, look to these things for ultimate satisfaction, ultimate happiness, it's going to end with a thud. It's going to end with a thud. In the song that this opera singer Jenny sang in The Greatest Showman is so appropriate. It goes like this. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough for me. Never, never, never for me. You see, the moment something is accomplished or won, the moment we get that bonus the moment we get that new career, the moment we earn that new title, those moments have maximum enjoyment in the moment, but they're fleeting. Zach Eswine says it this way, they're like a gypsy, a wanderer who fidgets to leave as soon as it arrives. You see, he experienced momentary happiness, and then like chasing after the wind and trying to hold on to it, the feeling was gone. And this, I'm going to tell you what the solution is not to this. The solution is not abstinence from all that the preacher chased after. I just said it in a different way a few minutes ago. It's not throwing away all that fails to satisfy. It's embracing the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ that provides true satisfaction and true pleasure in the triune God. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Brothers and sisters, check yourself. You should never have a goal to be rich. <laughs> are you laughing at me? <laughs> or are you trying to get rich? <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> Our goal should never be to, to be rich. It should be God's given us um, gifts and passions and abilities, and we should use it all for the glory of God and for the good of other people. And guess what happens? Some people get rich. Praise be to God. The church needs more sold-out rich people. 
Verse 10, for the love of money, this is in contrast to the love of God, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. That's what the preacher did. And then down in verse 17 in 1 Timothy 6, it says this, for as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. That's where pleasure is found. It set our hopes on God, not on, not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you see how we flip that? That we're to enjoy everything. But we're to find hope and pleasure and satisfaction in the giver of everything. Once he gives it to us in verse 18, we're to do good, we're to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Philip Ryken says it this way, when we turn to him, something surprising happens. The very pleasures that fail to satisfy us now help us to find even greater joy in the goodness of God. And this happens when we receive every pleasure as a gift from God in the way that David did in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We taste true pleasure when we receive wine as a gift from God, drinking it with a merry heart. We taste true pleasure when we build or buy beautiful homes, provided we use them for the glory of God and for the good of other people. We taste true pleasure when we behold the glory of God in our gardens and enjoy the produce and share the produce with other people. No more zucchinis, please. We taste true pleasure when we behold the glory, when we, when, excuse me, when we see and treat all people as equals with a heart to serve them and share with them rather than using them to serve our own purposes and agendas. We taste true pleasure when we see our silver and gold, our finances and wealth as a gift from God to be stewarded and invested in the kingdom of God with a, with a guaranteed return eternally. We taste true pleasure when we let music, all sorts of music, move our senses and emotions to worship God. And finally, we we taste true pleasure when we experience sex in the context that God created it for, in the context of marriage with one man and one woman. Brothers and sisters, God is not a killjoy. He's just the opposite. He wants maximum happiness for you. He wants you to experience pleasure and satisfaction and happiness in all of his good gifts, but this will never happen until we first find ultimate pleasure in him. And I'm going to uh, finish with this poem um, from C.T. Studd. And, um, And then we'll bring the worship team up and pray. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way. Bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. One life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave. And to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years. Each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill. Living for self or in his will. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore. When Satan would a victory score. When self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my life, only one life will soon be passed, 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Two more stanzas. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Last stanza. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only when one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last." Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, what comes to mind initially, God, is I thank you that, um, that you sought us out, um, that you created us for um, infinite and ultimate and eternal pleasure. And um, our first ancestors, God, um, turned that upside down looking for pleasure um, in um, things that you created that were forbidden. And Lord, we've continued that pattern over the centuries. And I thank you, God, that even though we've continued that pattern in humanity, and in some ways I continue that pattern in my own life today, uh, but that you are a promise-keeping God, that, you are, uh, that your love endures forever. And I thank you that um, even as uh, Solomon, um, uh, the account of Solomon in First Kings that we saw, that, that you gave him the loving discipline, that you did not, uh, you did not um, say, I'm done with humanity. I'm going to wipe out all the kingdoms. But God, that you continued the thread of the seed that would bring forth a Messiah so that we could have life so that we could have new life and that we could have life abundantly. So God, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, Jesus. Thank you that he tore the curtain and that we have an infinite relationship with the creator of the universe. And we thank you that it's in your presence that pleasure is found. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.